You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. We are here to discuss North by Northwest, which came out in 1959. Have you planned your vacation yet? You have a choice between sand and sunburn, or mountain climbing and the Charlie horse. I have just made a motion picture, North by Northwest, to show you some of these delights. It was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It stars Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, James Mason, Jesse Royce Landis, and Martin Landau in one of his earliest roles. The genre would be spy thriller. Ah, This movie, North by Northwest. I'm embarrassed to say that I've probably not seen the majority of films directed by Alfred Hitchcock, nor those starring Cary Grant. But the ones I have seen, I generally love. This particular one happens to be one of my all-time favorite films, and it was fun to revisit it for the first time in more than a decade. Now, it should go without saying that both Hitchcock and Grant are legends, but if you're not familiar why, it's quite simple. Decades later, Hitchcock's films remain the prototype for the modern blockbuster, and Cary Grant remains the prototype for the modern action star. You watch a film like this, and it's clear how Hitch's predilections for brisk pacing, fearless camera work, Love those zooms, playful tone, even in his darker films like Vertigo, and distinctly spread out action suspense set pieces has influenced every major genre director from Spielberg to De Palma to Carpenter to Craven to McTiernan to Nolan to to Juan. None of these guys could have done what they did without Hitchcock laying the groundwork. And regarding Archibald Leach, as is Cary Grant's real name... (laughs) You know a star has reached iconic status when folks take the time to find out his real name, and even that becomes public knowledge. Well, any time you hear or read some bro online moaning about how his favorite comic book hero, say Rick from The Walking Dead, or how this cool new thriller he just saw, um, say Get Out, is starring some British dude as he's commiserating as to why they couldn't cast an American instead, well, you have Cary Grant to thank for much of that. Because while Cary Grant had American peers, like John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart, who were arguably bigger stars at the time, or he had fellow Brits like Peter O'Toole or Richard Burton, who were also matinee idols, none of these actors could make their on-screen charisma seem so effortless as Cary Grant. And with a distinct voice, no less. Grant had that effete transatlantic accent, which no one could resist, and all around he just had a unique charm about him which was near impossible to duplicate. It's a big reason why around this same time, 1959, Albert Broccoli and Ian Fleming, they were falling all over themselves to try to cast Grant as James Bond, to no avail. Though I do hear some Scottish dude provided a nice consolation once he was cast in that role. 
to this day, Hollywood studios and agents and anyone else under the sun making movies, they are still searching for the next Cary Grant, even if they're not conscious of it. Yeah, taxi. I beg your pardon. I have a very sick woman here. You don't mind, do you? Well, no. Thank I mean, uh, perfectly all right. First stop the plaza. Don't show the flag. Poor man. Oh, come, come, come. I mean, I'm a happy man. I made him feel like a good Samaritan. You knew you were lying. Ah, Maggie, in the world of advertising, there's no such thing as a lie. There's only the expedient exaggeration. You ought to know that. And those traits are on full display as he plays our main protagonist, Roger Thornhill, a single, well-dressed Manhattan advertising executive who lives with his mother. Now, don't ask me why, but I'm still at a loss as to why Thornhill's mother is such a prominent character during the opening 40 minutes of this movie, except to give him disapproving looks and undercut him around authority figures. Don't get me wrong, she's still fun to watch. One afternoon, after leaving the office, Thornhill gets kidnapped at gunpoint by two goons who have mistaken him for someone named Kaplan, whom it turns out is the name of a rival spy to the intelligence organization that they work for. Now, this unnamed organization is led by Van Damme, who becomes our main villain, who is played deliciously by the also legendary James Mason, who never met a biting aside that he couldn't just nail. Not what I expected, a little taller, a little more polished than the others. Oh, I'm so glad you're pleased, Mr. Townsend. But I'm afraid, just as obvious. And what the devil is all this about? Why was I brought here? Games? Must we? Not that I mind a slight case of abduction now and then, but I have tickets for the theater this evening, to a show I was looking forward to. And I get, well, kind of unreasonable about things like that. With such expert play acting, you make this very room a theater. They take him to Van Damme's mansion, or is it? And Thornhill vehemently denies any knowledge of the secret operation they're questioning him about. So they decide to force him to imbibe large quantities of bourbon before sending him off driving in a stolen car. He drunkenly tries to drive around some treacherous cliffs and barely manages to keep himself alive before he's rear-ended by local police and arrested for drunk driving. And then the plot thickens. Now, Hitchcock handles all of this with a light but suspenseful touch as we watch Thornhill get embroiled in a mistaken identity plot involving a MacGuffin, phrase I've used before. Hitchcock sort of invented it. It basically means the device, object, what have you, that drives the story, even when we don't know much about it. And in this case, I think the MacGuffin is a microfilm, as there is a quick mention of that at some point. Along the way, he also meets the mysterious Eve on a train heading out of New York City. Eve is a beautiful designer who flirts intensely with Roger off the bat, along with helping him evade the authorities. She is played nicely by the luminous Eva Marie Saint. The two of them have scorching chemistry, and for around 20 minutes in the middle of this shindig, North by Northwest starts to resemble more of a romantic comedy set on a train as opposed to a spy thriller. It's at this point when you can most feel the imprint of another legend, Ernest Lehman, who wrote the screenplay. Up until this point, Lehman was well-known for writing big-time romances, including Sabrina and The King and I. So this romantic interlude section works very well, and it doesn't even stop the film in its tracks, pun intended. There's nice romantic banter along with a veil of mystery between Roger and Eve, especially as it's revealed unbeknownst to Roger that she might actually be a spy for Van Damme. Or is she? Anyhow, I have that effect on people. It's something about my face. It's a nice face. You think so? I wouldn't say it if I didn't. 
Oh, you're that type. What type? Honest. Not really. Good, because all these women frighten me. Why? I don't know. Somehow they seem to put me at a disadvantage. Because you're not honest with them? Exactly. Like that business about the seven parking tickets? What I mean is, the moment I meet an attractive woman, I have to start pretending I've no desire to make love to her. What makes you think you have to conceal it? She might find the idea objectionable. Then again, she might not. And from there, we have a full-on spy thriller, and one of the best, with lethal crop dusters, double crosses, auction hijinks, all leading to the now heavily influential climax starting near the top of Mount Rushmore. Throughout the film, we are also treated to Bernard Herrmann's booming score, which is probably among my top five all-time. It has lush romantic spots, thunderous action themes, punctuated with brass, just the works. So does North by Northwest hold up? I would say unequivocally yes. Hitchcock was truly ahead of his time as this gets right into the action with some setup. We're barely 15 minutes in and Grant is already drunkenly trying to maneuver around those cliffs. And even though this clocks in at around 135 minutes, which makes it one of Hitchcock's longest films, it absolutely flies by. Helped in no small part by Hitch's longtime editor, George Tomazzini. Now that Mount Rushmore climax. It has some clunky stunt work, and has some cropping which hasn't aged particularly well, but it's still an audacious set piece with a final action beat that nicely transitions into that lovely ending of the film on the train. And the crop duster sequence, it remains a classic. It just has a good rhythm to it, and Grant pulls off the physical stuff better than I remember, actually. He was running pretty strong even well into his 50s. And speaking of our star, he delivers a compelling protagonist with just the right mix of confusion, relatability, and a nice dose of humor throughout. Who else could deliver the following declaration with such a plum? I'm an advertising man, not a red herring. I've got a job, a secretary, a mother, two ex-wives, and several bartenders dependent upon me. And I don't intend to disappoint them all by getting myself slightly killed. As much as this was a vehicle for its lead actor, though, Hitchcock was still the star at the end of the day. This has his stamp throughout, right from the get-go, with a snappy opening credit sequence, culminating with the indelible image of Hitch himself. He cameoed in most of his films. Missing a bus on a bustling Manhattan street. Even though North by Northwest might not be his most accomplished film overall, that would likely be Vertigo, this might be his most unabashedly entertaining film. This movie remains proof positive that Cary Grant and Alfred Hitchcock each deserve to have their face on their own respective Mount Rushmores for both movie stars and directors. And that brings us to the categories. And the first category is Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. And never has that been more prevalent than this film. Before John Williams, before Hans Zimmer, there was Bernard Herrmann, who was the man crafting big scores for big movies, and none bigger than the one he did for North by Northwest. And his score just goes big for the Mount Rushmore climax. You can almost feel how treacherous it is for Thornhill and Eve as they're climbing down the faces of these monuments, sometimes literally hanging by their fingernails at one point. Different sections of the orchestra just seem to come out at different moments, just heightening the tension. It's truly high-wire music for a high-wire sequence.
That brings me to our next category, wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. James Mason is one of those legendary actors who traversed several decades of memorable performances, from dominating the British stage in the 1930s to breaking out in Hollywood in the 1950s with roles like the original A Star is Born, where he starred against Judy Garland, all the way to the early 80s with a very memorable supporting turn in The Verdict against Paul Newman. And that is definitely a film I hope to review at some point. Mason could play villains or heroes with a plum, which he pretty much does for the first two-thirds of this movie. And then his character just becomes much less of a factor, to the point where Martin Landau's Leonard becomes the more active villain during the final half hour, even though he's technically the henchman. It's just weird. Even Mason's final scene in the movie is a complete throwaway. I'll just leave it at that. Yes, the film still ends on a satisfying note, but I would just consider this a small nitpick, considering just how much fun it was to hear James Mason and Cary Grant talk to each other, each with their own feet accents. Clearly, Hitchcock was rushing his ending for that visual gag, so I kind of get that. I kind of get why he did this. But here's a thought. How about trading some screen time for Thornhill's mother, who pretty much disappears after the first 45 minutes and giving more to Mason in the, in the third act? Yep, I am sure that the spirit of Alfred Hitchcock is listening intently on my suggestions here. But that's just my wasted talent. 106 for your pleasure is the... Oh, Mr. Van Damme. Has anyone ever told you that you overplay your various roles rather severely, Mr. Kaplan? First, you're the outraged Madison Avenue man who claims he's been mistaken for someone else. Then you play the fugitive from justice, supposedly trying to clear his name of a crime he knows he didn't commit. Now you play the peevish lover, stung by jealousy and betrayal. Seems to me you fellows could stand a little less training from the FBI and a little more from the actor's studio. And that brings me to the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Now, there are a few notable elements of this film which have helped it endure for more than 60 years, but none more so than, you guessed it, crop dusters. <laughs> It's crazy, but just their mere mention of crop dusters will elicit memories of this movie, and vice versa. And here's the thing. The crop duster sequence is still a great sequence all of these years later. Unlike the Mount Rushmore climax, there's nothing about this sequence, sequence which is aged particularly badly. It's the standout sequence of the film, and it's action filmmaking at its best. And the best moment in this particular sequence? It's a pretty jaw-dropping one. Roger Thornhill is running towards the camera, and that dang crop duster is flying just above him, right behind him, towards the camera as well. I could comfortably say this is one of the top 10 trailer moments of all time. And that brings me to the final category, and that would be MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Of course, it has to be my man Hitch. Hitchcock has crafted here one of the most influential genre films of all time, and he did it with a wink and smile throughout. This film never takes itself too seriously, but it never feels like a joke either. It just has a playful spirit which comes through in every shot, every performance, every editing choice. And don't get me wrong, Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, James Mason, Martin Landau, they have each been in so many memorable films before and since. But the master of suspense here utilized their talents in the most entertaining way possible. This film is just pure 100% enjoyment and it couldn't have come from anyone else. That was amusing, wasn't it? But please don't get the idea it was mere entertainment. My overall rating for North by Northwest, 
would be five stars out of five. I love this film. And just on a personal note, I don't pretend to be an expert on a lot of films from before 1970. I've been actually revisiting a lot of films from those decades, 70s, 80s, what have you. But I know great filmmaking when I see it. And for anybody who loves current blockbusters, you know, Marvel, Star Wars, James Bond, Fast and the Furious, going back decades, Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, what have you. If you love those kind of films, I think you'll love this. This is pure 100% great filmmaking, and it deserves a watch. And if you're looking for it, you could find it streaming on HBO Max. And that ends another monumental review. Please subscribe to the Living for the Cinema podcast. Follow and like us on Facebook and Instagram. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.